imprisonment within that body of law is absolutely a policy choice. It does not have to be used. And if we want to reduce harm to children, we first have to stop using imprisonment altogether. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the podcast, Immigrant Lives. My name is Elizabeth Aranda, and I'm Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Immigrant Wellbeing Research Center at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida in the United States. Today we will be discussing the practice of detaining or imprisoning immigrants until their court cases can be heard and they are either released into the custody of family members or deported. Data as recent as September from Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse indicate that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, held slightly over 35,000 immigrants in detention, of which about 69% had no criminal record. Many more have only minor offenses, including traffic violations. When they are released to their families, they often are tethered to electronic monitoring devices that can malfunction, are subject to glitches, and can prove to be burdensome to not just immigrants but their families as well. Almost 195,000 families and single immigrants are monitored through ICE's Alternative to Detention programs, which includes these electronic monitoring devices, among other surveillance mechanisms, with an average of 547 days in these programs. We've invited two experts to be with us today to get a pulse on how the practice of detaining immigrants and their surveillance affects their children. Dr. Caitlin Patler is Associate Professor of Public Policy at the UC Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy and a faculty affiliate of the Berkeley Interdisciplinary Migration Initiative and the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. As a sociologist, Dr. Patler's research examines U.S. immigration and criminal laws, legal statuses, and law enforcement institutions as drivers of socioeconomic and health disparities and the spillover and intergenerational consequences of systemic inequality for children and household well-being. Dr. Patler has served as an expert in over a dozen federal court cases related to immigration policy, and her research has been cited in the U.S. Supreme Court and in federal rulemaking. Dr. Miriam Martinez-Aranda is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. She received her Ph.D. in sociology from UCLA in 2021. Her research examines the social, material, and health repercussions of immigration detention and surveillance for immigrants, their families, and communities. Her work has been published in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies, Law and Society Review, and Social Problems, and has received generous support from funders such as the National Science Foundation, the Eugene Cora Robles Fellowship, the Dorothy Meyer Dissertation Fellowship, and the Ronald McNair Fellowship. Thank you both for being here today, and I should clarify to our audience that despite our common last name, Media and I are not related in any way. So I'd like to begin with Caitlin. Tell me a little bit about what your research is about. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's wonderful to share this space with you and with Median. So broadly, my research focuses on the impact of policies on immigrant communities. And more specifically, I focus on policies that are related to immigrants' rights and the enforcement of immigration laws. 
And this is particularly important because structural racism and xenophobia are so deeply embedded in U.S. immigration policies, which means that immigration laws and the enforcement of those laws disproportionately harm racialized minority communities in the United States. So what I have tried to do in my work is document not just the harms imposed by those immigration laws, that, which is what we'll talk about today, but also examine how laws can be changed to try to promote equity and eliminate barriers to immigrants living their full and healthy lives. Thank you. Median, tell us a bit about your research and also why you chose to focus on this area of investigation. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation and for the opportunity to be here to discuss my work. So my research encompasses different areas of uh, such as international migration, immigration detention, race and ethnicity and health. But I specifically study how the state uses immigration status to stratify, surveil, and exclude immigrants, their families, and communities. My research also focuses on how surveillance technologies such as the GPS ankle monitor or facial recognition apps employed by immigration enforcement impacts immigrants and their children's well-being. The reason that I chose to study this area is because I believe it is vital to provide uh, policymakers and the public with rigorous uh, scholarship about the impact uh, immigration enforcement has on immigrant communities. Wonderful. Thank you. Caitlin, you and your co-author, Gabriela Gonzalez, just published an article where you document the psychological distress that children experience due to their parents' detention. Can you tell us more about these findings? Yeah. So for this particular paper, we talked with over 60 people, including young school-age children, as young as 11 years old, who were experiencing or had experienced the imprisonment of a parent in an immigration detention facility. We refer to that as parental immigration imprisonment. We also talked to their non-detained caregivers, most frequently another parent who was not detained, um, who was caring for them. And what we wanted to understand in children's own words or as described by their parents, how that parental immigration imprisonment had impacted them. And what our study finds is what I believe to be very strong evidence of the extensive harms of parental immigration imprisonment for children. So children experiencing parental immigration imprisonment reported feelings and behaviors suggestive of the fact that they have endured significant psychological distress. Children described in great detail feeling very, very nervous, sad. Um, for example, they would describe crying uncontrollably or crying in places they weren't expecting to cry, like in the middle of the grocery store, for example. They described feeling unable to stop thinking about the situation that they were going through, that their family was going through. Some children told us that they were experiencing a lack of appetite. I just, I just couldn't eat. I couldn't make myself eat. Others said they, they couldn't stop eating. Um, they reported headaches, upset stomach trouble sleeping, having nightmares or night terrors, waking up sweating. I mean, these are young children telling us about these experiences. They're constantly worried about what's going to happen next. Will their parent be deported? Are they going to face permanent family separation because of deportation? 
And one of the reasons that they feel this way is because in the immigration detention system, there are really very, very few constitutional limits on the length of detention. Detention is not a sentence the way incarceration happens under criminal laws. And so detention can go on and on and on without an end date in sight and with that possibility of deportation and permanent family separation at the end of it. And so, of course, children are feeling these things. This leads to changes in their engagement and behavior at school. If they are constantly worrying, they have trouble concentrating. One parent described a teacher talking about the child saying, it's like he's not even here. Wow. Because he's sitting in the classroom and cannot focus, cannot concentrate. Um, For older children, their grades go down. Some children start acting out or they get in trouble for sitting quietly in class and not answering questions or being perceived as not paying attention. And so then the parent who's not detained has to engage in the school context to try to protect that child from punishment. Some teachers and schools were very supportive. We asked about that. We talked to children about that and their parents, but other schools were sort of taking a punitive approach and punishing these children, often because they didn't know what was happening. We really document the way that parental immigration imprisonment can harm the children psychologically, which has all of these downstream impacts in their schooling. I'm curious as to the age range of the children in your study, how young and how old were they? The children that we focused on in this particular study were between the ages of 11 and 18 years old. And so we we were interested in talking to children who were school age. Uh, so we're still attending school because we wanted to understand the connection between parental immigration imprisonment, emotional health, the school experience. And we also wanted to understand how schools were responding to children with this particular set of needs. Right, right. But we, in the larger study, we talked to children who were also older than that. And we talked to parents about children who were much younger than 11, but the children we talked to directly were between 11 and 18 years old. So the psychological harm extended into their schoolwork. And so it had ripple effects into different areas of their lives. That's exactly right. Um, You know, the the child that I mentioned whose caregiver said, it's like he's not even here, that was a preschool child. And the mother, who had three children, was describing to me that the caregiver for this this preschool-aged child would say, he just sits there staring. It's like he's not even here. In fact, the teacher said, you should have this child screened for autism. Um, Because the the teacher, the caregiver was worried that the child might have a larger, more serious medical or health issue to deal with. But in fact, they were experiencing trauma resulting from the, the father, in this case, the father's detention. Median, you also published an article on this topic, but instead you focused specifically on the impact of surveillance mechanisms, such as the electronic monitoring device or the ankle bracelet on the relationship between formerly detained immigrants and their children. What can you tell us about the impacts of these devices on these relationships? So in in this study, I focus on the impact of electronic monitors on immigrant parents and their children in the Los Angeles metro area. So these devices are often presented by eyes as a more humane alternative to immigration detention. 
But what my research reveals, it's a completely different reality from the interviews and observations that I conducted it became clear that these devices bring significant challenges for the families. So one major issue that I found is the stigma of criminality that is usually associated with this device. So parents reported a negative psychological impact because of this label attached to the device of, you know, the label of criminality and how it affected them and also their children. And another major finding for this study is the unpredictability and also the malfunction of this technology. So this electronic monitor often overheats and also makes loud noises and and malfunctions. And this adds constant sense of fear and, and pressure on the families and the children. And this fear isn't really just about the device. It is about uh, what it represents, right? When the device makes noises or it's overheating, the children and the parents uh, believe that there is a possibility that eyes might show up and trigger re-detention for the parents. So the children tend to become really afraid, right, of this possibility that a parent might be redetained or they will be separated again. I also found that the stress and the physical discomfort created by this device impacted the parent's mental and emotional health, and this produced a strained relationship with the children. So, and what I mean by this is like normal and and everyday activities for the parents, like going to the park or going to the beach became challenging due to the limitations imposed by the electronic monitor. I had one father tell me when he was released from immigration detention, he was given this electronic monitor and his child asked him to go to the beach because they haven't been together for a long time. So they went to the beach and the child wanted to go in the water with a boogie board. But the father, uh, you know, told him that he couldn't do that. So the child became really distressed, right? And and started hitting the boogie board and having a lot of anger. And the father, you know, felt that he needed to explain to his child what was going on. And he told him, right, I can't go in, in the water with you. Because if that happens, then I'm going to destroy the ankle monitor and ICE is going to come back and get me. So that really shows, right, like displays how the relationship between a father and a child is, is truly disrupted by this electronic monitor. And also, you know, this electronic devices, they have this broader social impact. And what I mean by this is that the electronic monitor create a divide within immigrant communities as families uh, without electronic monitor might avoid those who have them, right? Because usually families are fearing uh, potential immigration enforcement actions. And this, you know, what it does is that it's fracturing, right? The, The support networks that are really vital for immigrant communities. So other families won't want their children to associate with children who have parents with 
these electronic devices because they're afraid that they might attract uh, the attention of ICE authorities. Is that what you mean by that? Yes, exactly. Having the device is really intrusive, right? The way that parents carry relationships. When parents have the electronic monitors, there were many instances that neighbors or even other people in the household will ask the parents to move out. Wow. Or, you know, with their with their children because they couldn't share the same household. Other families or other members of the families were uh, were afraid that ICE will come and in the process of supervising this person, they will have collateral arrest right. and take everyone else. So the ripple effects that end up affecting not just the parent-child relationship, but all the whole network in a way of the parent. That's incredible. Mitian, what alternatives do you suggest could be adopted so that children don't have to go through these negative experiences? Considering all the harms that I've been mentioning, right, that my research has found, I think it is important to underline that it is clear that we need truly humane alternative to immigration detention. So the whole premise for the dissemination of these surveillance technologies in, in immigrant communities is because ICE frame immigrants as non-compliance with the mandates of their immigration case, right? So one solution is to quickly provide work permits for people, right? And also invest on community-based programs that can provide housing, educational support, healthcare, and also other programs that can foster a sense of belonging and stability for these families. I also believe that, you know, most importantly, providing access to universal representation and the right to counsel for immigrants greatly increases the likelihood that people will attend their immigration hearings. So research has shown that immigrants with legal representation are more likely to attend their immigration hearings, right? So people, they want to go to the immigration hearings. They want to follow the rules of their immigration proceedings. We just need to provide with the necessary support through the legal representation. And this will definitely alleviate, right, the impact that the children are experiencing, all of the negative psychological impacts that come with the surveillance technology. So with that representation, there would really be no need for for tracking because people will comply. Yes, definitely. So, you know, in essence, we need to shift away, right, from punitive technologies like the electronic monitor toward community center and resource focused programs Mm -hmm. that can create, you know, like more equitable and and a just system for immigrant families. Caitlin, I imagine... A lot of the stories from your research, some what you shared here, are were hard to hear. What alternatives to detention do you suggest could mitigate the harm that children undergo? Well, I would start by saying that, first of all, I agree with all of the suggestions, the research and evidence-based suggestions that Miriam has just made. But I also want to remind our listeners that imprisonment in immigration law is a policy choice. There is no evidence 
in fact, that it's necessary to use imprisonment in this body of administrative law. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is not criminal law. And in fact, we're not talking about criminal law today, but there's a lot of problems with the use of incarceration under criminal law. But leaving that aside for the moment and focusing on the fact that immigration law is administrative law, imprisonment within that body of law is absolutely a policy choice. It does not have to be used. And if we want to reduce harm to children, we first have to stop using imprisonment altogether. And I want to add to what Miriam said by saying that, in fact, there really isn't any evidence that it's necessary to use imprisonment to ensure compliance with immigration legal proceedings. Immigrants attend their court hearings at very, very high rates. As Miriam pointed out, they attend hearings at higher rates when they're represented. And this can be often because things happen like a court hearing notification is never delivered in the mail, but it is received by the attorney. So it's not that attorneys are a magical anecdote to get people to comply who otherwise aren't complying. It's that there are a lot of problems with the system that make it difficult or impossible for people to show up to hearings. But either way, people show up at very, very high rates. There was a national study done by a couple of law professors that looked at millions of removal proceedings, deportation proceedings in the United States from 2008 to 2018 that showed that almost nine out of 10 people showed up to the hearings. That's a very, very high compliance rate to begin with. And so not only is imprisonment not necessary to ensure that compliance, but it's also incredibly harmful for the reasons that we've been discussing here. And so ending that use of imprisonment altogether seems to me to be the way that we can reduce harm to these very vulnerable community members, many of whom are U.S. citizens. You know, I'm curious about how other societies, other Western industrialized countries approach this issue, Caitlin. Do they also imprison immigrants who are awaiting their court cases without providing them with guaranteed legal representation? Certainly many countries do not use imprisonment and they use the very types of alternatives to imprisonment that Miriam was mentioning. Um, there are many alternatives to incarceration in countries around the globe. And in fact, the United States has not always relied on immigration detention itself. So there have been decades of U.S. history where detention was not used at all. And it's really been only over the past 40 years or so that the use of incarceration in immigration legal proceedings has ballooned. That's not even the right word, has expanded exponentially alongside the massive growth in mass incarceration in the United States. So the U.S. uses incarceration as a way to solve its social problems. It does not have to do so. Again, that is a policy choice. And again, there's no evidence that detention is effective for meeting its supposed purpose of ensuring compliance, but there is abundant evidence, including the articles that we've written for this special edition, of its harm. So dismantling that system is really critical, in my view, to efforts to protecting community health and advancing racial justice. And Miriam, what might be some of the longer-term consequences of these practices for children's well-being? Yes, that's a great question. So my research, you know, shows that there are multiple effects, negative effects on the life of these children, right? So the long-term effects of surveillance technology on children are significant and deeply concerning. So younger children often feel scared and anxious because of these devices. They see them not just as 
frightening objects that make loud noises, but also as reminders, right, that their parent at any moment could be taken away from them. And this fear, it's very powerful, right? And it can disrupt the sense of security of any child. For older children, the impact, it's also they fear family separation, and it's equally profound, the harms, right, that are produced by this electronic monitor. But I found in my research that older children, they feel embarrassment and stigmatization because of these devices that are marking their parents, right, as quote-unquote criminal aliens. And this leads to feelings of social exclusion and shame. And also this embarrassment can be especially challenging during, you know, your teenager's years. And this affects teenagers' identity and how they see themselves fitting in society. And beyond the emotional effects, there is also broader implications on the children's futures. So some children might start avoiding any system of or authority, potentially like missing out on important political and economic opportunities. Some children could grow up to become disenfranchised voters because they don't want to do anything with a system that harmed their parents, right? Or it could also have the opposite effect, which means that children would leverage their citizenship and voting rights, right, to vote out politicians that harm immigrant communities. So it's interesting because we often forget that the children of immigrants, many of them are U.S. citizens. And like you said, they will grow up to be a voting constituency. So that's interesting to hear about some of those long-term consequences. Just sort of winding down a little bit for both of you, is there anything else you think our audience should know regarding the effects of immigrant detention and these alternatives to detention on immigrants and their children's well-being? Caitlin, I'll start with you. Yes, I think it's very important for people to understand. We focus today on children and we very much need to do that. Children are vulnerable community members. They're young. They need a lot of support. They deserve a better life than the one immigration laws are giving them. And their parents, the detained parent is also suffering. Detention exerts significant harms onto the person who is detained. They experience poorer health. They're subject to all of the horrible conditions of confinement that are present in jails and detention centers more broadly. Things like overcrowding, things like not being able to access healthy or fresh foods, things like mold or heat, too much heat or too much light or too much cool air in a facility. There are a number of health harms that the people who are detained experience. And so even when they're able to be released from detention, as some people are, and as we're arguing everyone should, their health will often improve following release, but they are still having to deal with the trauma, emotional trauma at very least, and sometimes the physical aftermath of having experienced that detention. And so this is really a family level thing. So incarceration may happen to only one family member, and it impacts that person very, very deeply but it also impacts everyone else in the family. And I think that that is a very important point to remember. Median? 
Yes. So I recently unveiled a new surveillance technology tool, which is very similar to an Apple Watch. So although the form of the surveillance tool has evolved to appear more benign and humane, it continues to inflict the same harms on immigrants, on their families, and also on their communities. So I think it is important to remember that even if ICE continues to change the shape of the surveillance, it is going to continue to inflict the same damage that we've seen with the GPS ankle monitor. There's probably going to be a lot of malfunction. Children will continue to be afraid because they know what this new technology symbolizes, right? Family separation, parent detention. Additionally, there is a significant lack of transparency regarding the handling of this data that is being collected through this technology. So the American public has the right to know how and where this data is being collected and stored. And it is not only immigrants, right, who are being monitored, but also their citizen children and anyone who comes into contact with this surveillance technology. Fascinating. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been a fascinating conversation and hopefully our audience can understand a little bit better what immigrants and their children go through. As Caitlin said, it's a family event, not just an individual experience. So thank you again for your time and your expertise and for the important research that you're doing in the community. Clearly, your research brings these issues to light so the public is aware of the short and long-term consequences of our policies. So that's all for now. Thank you for listening, and please join us for the next episode of Immigrant Lives. 